0: We are having trouble getting the iPad to talk to the screens up there, so they're working on it. If it works, they'll bring it to me. If not, we'll make do without. We are in 1 Timothy 1, finishing up chapter 1 this this evening, Um, so we'll be in verses 12 through 20. But before we get there, um, it's important that we, we even realize how we read this book affects um, what we're going to get out of it. So when we come to books like this, especially Pauline books, um, so you have letters with a, a long logic to them or a one gigantic argument, we will typically read it in small chunks. So tonight we're going to read, you know, nine verses of First Timothy 1. And um, that puts us from the get-go at a pretty decided disadvantage. Primarily because Paul wrote these as comprehensive documents intended to be read um, in one sitting or read to people in one sitting. So when we come to just nine verses at the back half of chapter one, it's a lot like watch—you uh, know, skipping the first ten minutes of a movie, watching the next nine, and then ignoring the last half of the movie, and then showing up and saying, now let me explain to you what those nine minutes meant. Like, Really? Like, ignoring everything else that the director had in mind and that the actors conveyed, you're going to look at that little sliver, those nine minutes of that movie, and try to explain to me what this movie meant. You'll forgive me if I'm a little suspicious that you can extrapolate that far, that you can tell me where the director was going, you can tell me how this story resolves, you're just looking at that little sliver. And we do that a lot with Scripture. We, we come to this particular section and we say, wow, like Paul is, has some really important things to say about grace and mercy. He's going to talk about what it means to throw some people out of the church, to hand them over to Satan. Now, to ignore everything else that's going on in the book just puts us behind the eight ball. So one of the benefits that we have um, in, in terms of kind of a study like this is not only do we normally have it on the screens, but we can, we can, we're recording the, the audio to these kind of things, and we need to make sure that we are constantly tracking through, that we don't divorce uh, verses 12 through 20 from particularly verses 3 through 11, because I'll, I'll make the argument that it's actually the back end of the same argument. And then we, got to, we can't ignore the fact that it's going somewhere. Like what Paul says to us tonight is going to affect what he says in chapter 2 about prayer. What he says in chapter 3 about elders and deacons. And so one of the things that we have to do when we come to letters like this is we have to always be reading over our shoulders. We can't just keep moving on. It's not this onward idea. It's so, a no, we have to take this as a comprehensive argument. So, that being said, I wish I actually had the iPad, because I had last week's text pulled up. I had Jim's markings on it. We need to, we need to consider what was, what was taking place in the first half of this chapter, which will really help us understand what's going on here tonight. So, um, let me grab the Bible, actually. In the beginning of 1 Peter or 1 Timothy 1, um, Paul not only issues his greeting, to describes who he is and his relationship um, to, to the church and, and, and as an apostle of Christ Jesus, then he, he introduces us to the recipient of this letter and gives his kind of initial, typical Pauline greetings. Then he goes into what he wants to communicate to Timothy, and, and verse 3 is very telling. Verse 3 actually sets the tone for our verses tonight. He says, I urged you. When I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. And tonight's text is going to be the continuation of that instruction. Timothy, I want you to return to the church in Ephesus, and your job is to prevent certain people from teaching certain things. A bit of a stout instruction, a bit of an unnerving instruction at times, but he, he says this is your job. And then he goes on and he explains what the problem is. He says, now some of these people have gone in and they've perverted the message. They have, we have leaders in the church that are teaching doctrine, teaching a gospel contrary to the one that was initially preached when the church was planted in Ephesus, when I appointed elders there. He says, they're bringing in this Jewish mysticism that is holding out the law as still somehow essential to following Jesus. And he says, I don't need you to debate with them shut them down. Like, you are not going to let them teach any longer. That's what he, that's the instructions from the first half of the chapter. And then he establishes, he says, you know why the law exists? The law exists for those who are unrighteous. It's not for those who have been saved by grace through faith. The, The law is an old epoch. It is something from a previous time. And then he kind of, he ends with this, uh, this vice list, this list of, of things that are going wrong that Timothy needs to address. And then he says in verse 11 of chapter one, That they've been teaching something, whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. And uh, if you you have your own Bible or if you have your notes from last week, it's really important that you underline that word entrusted because it's going to color a lot of tonight's text. It's going to, Paul is going to draw on that idea and say "This, this matters, there's something that we have to hold on to. So. We have to always be reading over our shoulders. Another important aspect from last week's text is he says um, in verse 5, The aim of our charge is love. That issues in a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Good conscience, sincere faith. Those are more important phrases to underline. Ideas that Paul is going to pull through to tonight's text. Ideas that if we just leave them in tonight's text and don't connect them to what he said at the beginning of chapter one, just ring a little more shallow, and we don't get the full picture, the full weight of Paul's argument. He says, like, you are in, you are, you need to pursue love that. Um, Pursue love that issues from a pure heart, good conscience, and a sincere faith. So he moves then into the theological reason why these, uh, the, the opponents at Ephesus, the, 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 um, the leaders that are leading poorly, need to be, their theology needs to be shut down. Corrected if possible, shut down if necessary. So he says the law, is, it doesn't work like you want it to work. And then he moves into our text tonight. So we'll pick this up in verse 12. Paul um, turns into, he turns from kind of this somber note at the end of um, in, in verses 10 and 11 and turns to chapter, or into verse 12, and he gets real exuberant, real excited quickly. He says this, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, pointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent opponent. Now, the, our passage this evening is going to be a, a, a series of lists, ideas that Paul is stringing together. So our first list is, he says that there are three reasons that he is thanking him, Christ Jesus our Lord. He says, first of all, that he has given me strength. He has strengthened Timothy. Timothy. And then if we had the screen, so you guys can, I'm just going to kind of direct you. Um, one of my favorite things to do when I'm marking up the text is to highlight what words connect um, phrases to one another. So I just, like, I'm going to find all of the conjunctions, all of the, um, the, the words that issue, like, that this causes this or this turns into a chain reaction with this. So if I, if I had the screen, I would put a box or a circle around the word because in verse 12. So he has, I thank him who has given me strength, okay? Why has he given me strength? Because he has judged me faithful. So he's, Jesus has done two things for Paul. He's, he's strengthened him somehow because, why has he strengthened him? Because he has judged me faithful. Now this is a bit of a strange rendering in our text. But that word faithful, um, perhaps a better way to, to render that would be trustworthy. Connect that back to verse 11, Paul talks about that he has been entrusted with something, with this pure gospel, something that he will defend to the uttermost. And he says, God has strengthened me in Christ Jesus because he has judged me faithful or judged me trustworthy. And, and even the word judged is a bit misleading because it's not I look at him and there, he is faithful, so I'm going to give him strength. It is I have decided to make him faithful. I have decided to render him trustworthy. Our first list, he strengthened Paul. He has judged or rendered or reckoned Paul trustworthy or faithful, which results or looks like appointing me to his service. Paul has been strengthened, he's been reckoned trustworthy, and then he has been given a task, he's been commissioned. To serve. Now, I also find it quite interesting that Paul, in this verse, doesn't go to his favorite uh, way of describing how, how God has commissioned him. He, said, he doesn't say that he has appointed me to apostleship, a title that Paul has no problem laying claim to, a, a title that he has no problem taking and establishing or asserting his own authority because he's been given the task to serve as an apostle with the other, 12, the other 11 apostles. In this one, he actually says that he's been appointed to service. And the word there is actually the same word. It's from the same kind of a source word that we're going to see later in chapter three when he's talking about deacons whose job is to quite literally serve tables. Their job is to serve And so Paul says that he has been strengthened because he's been reckoned trustworthy, which results in his service. And we will see that when Paul, even in the rest of our text tonight, talks about the reason why he's been extended great mercy, the reason why he walks in this deep, deep grace offered to him by God the Father through Jesus Christ, it is never for his own sake. It is always for you, for your sake. So that I could be an example that, of the depths of God's grace so that I could serve. And, and you look at someone, and this is a man who even in his time, no newspapers, no internet, even his, in his time would have been famous for his position in the church. Walks around as a servant, taking care of other people. And I think it's just such an important reminder that this man who has all the authority in the world over this church, this man who who has spent a long time in this church and would therefore be highly esteemed and highly regarded not only as an apostle, but just as kind of a longstanding member of this church says, yeah, I was appointed to serve. And he glories in that. He loves that fact. One particular commentator said this, this calls to mind The truth that there is no office in the church, even the most exalted, that does not consist in serving rather than being served. You said there's no such thing as I will be served before I before I serve. You just no. Like Paul sets the paradigm for us, appointing me to his service. Now, if those are three incredible things listed together, look at the next three things that he strings together. Though, that would be another connecting word that I would circle. That's gonna, you can obviously tell he's going to contrast two ideas here. He has appointed me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent opponent. One, two, three, another list. Paul describes his former life he is, he is going to describe the gospel in his context before in a second he describes the gospel in the general context but he's using himself as an example and the way that he describes himself is, it increases in intensity it increases in depravity he says first and foremost I was a blasphemer I spoke evil against Christ and his mission I spoke evil against God in his ways though we'll see that Paul actually didn't realize he was doing that he was quite zealous for God Misplaced zeal, though. Formerly, I was a blasphemer. It gets worse. My blasphemy was so intense that it it produced persecution. I would actually attack people. You know, we all know Saul's famous conversion story from Acts 9. He's on the highway to Damascus. It would have been a many days journey, about 150 miles from Jerusalem. So we're talking a week or more in terms of travel time and on the off-ramp at Damascus, meets Jesus. And he's got in his hand, like, arrest warrants to go get Christians, bring them back, and try them for blasphemy, oddly enough. So his, his ability to speak violent things against God in his way produces a violent man who persecutes the church, which results in an insolent opponent Um, a man that is now a totally objectionable character. The things I said produced evil things that I was doing which produced vile things in my heart. Now you'll see this connection actually through our passage and as he gets down into his accusations against two particular men in the church you'll see that the, the things you think will produce things you say which will produce things you'll do which will produce a nastiness of heart and Paul says yeah that used to be me and yet like this isn't about how bad Paul is this whole text tonight is about just how incredible God's mercy and his grace is so carrying on but another connecting word I would circle he's going to contrast this one more time I received mercy because He'll say that phrase, he'll give us that phrase one more time. I received mercy because, so put an underlining under those three words, because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. Now this is a rather confusing line. I received mercy because I was ignorant. And we would say, well, therefore, does anyone who who is unaware of the truth, are they therefore like owed mercy from God? And that's not the argument that Paul is making. In fact, he's describing a, an, a, a sinfulness in him that was due to misplaced zeal. It wasn't an out-and-out rejection of the truth. It was that he was zealous for God without knowing the full truth, which doesn't then make him... Um, worthy of God's mercy it just simply leaves him in a position where he's able to receive it he is chasing after God as a Pharisee Mm, poorly (laughs) but he is so therefore when he encounters the risen Christ he is able to turn to repent and to accept such mercy so he's not his ignorance doesn't make him worthy of God's grace but it does put him where he is now in a position to receive it when it comes his way Paul is making a distinction in this particular verse between purposeful sin, willful disobedience, and sins of ignorance. Um, He's actually drawing on on an idea that I'd completely forgotten about until um, studying for this particular passage from Numbers 15, this idea that God doesn't, I think we all have this concept um, because of our obsession with equality and fairness, that God views all sins exactly the same. And we say this. No, all sin is sin, and therefore all sin is equally sinful. Okay. Your problem is most of the Bible and like reason, rationale, logic, and the fact that like we would ever in in any way equate murder and other heinous sins with lying. Now I'll say both are equally damnable before God, but they don't have the same degree of con- they don't they don't inflict the same degree of pain and i would even say one done in ignorance is much worse than one done with full revelation of the truth you could i think that an out and out rejection of the gospel is far more heinous than never hearing it you're still both dead in your sin, but one of these is an absolute offense against the creator of the universe. Now, I mentioned Numbers 15. If you look at verses 29 and 30, this is obviously from the Mosaic law, but I think Paul is drawing on this idea. It says in 29, you shall have one law for him who does anything unintentionally for him who is native among the people of Israel and for the stranger who sojourns among them. But the person who does anything with a high hand or anything with a brazen disrespect for the law that they are aware of with a brazen um, intentionality against God and against his revelation, anyone. but the person who does anything with a high hand, whether he is a native or a sojourner, reviles Yahweh. And that person shall be cut off from among his people. Because he has despised the word of Yahweh and has broken his commandment, that person shall be utterly cut off his iniquity shall be on him. And Paul draws on such an idea when he comes to our text this evening and he says that, I, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here's your next list. Grace, faith, and love. Now this is an interesting list because he pulls it apart. So it's a little harder to spot at first blush, but he pulls it apart, and he I think he's, he sets the dominoes up and he explains where where this stuff actually originates, so we might say Paul receives grace because he had faith, but that 's not what the text says i won't i won 't even argue that it says that elsewhere, but in our text tonight, with our heads down in the inspired word of God, our text tonight says that the grace of our Lord overflowed for me. This, it's, the, the idea of an, an overflow is like this super abundant grace produces the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. God has been so gracious. This is Paul's message in our text tonight. God has been so gracious that it has welled up in me an ability to have faith. The faith, the apostolic faith, the, the true faith and the true gospel, and the love that are both, all, all three of these things are because he is in Christ Jesus. Now, our first three verses, 12, 13, and 14. If you want to draw brackets around that, I'd like to break up the paragraph say, what are the main ideas in, this, in these? There's three main ideas, and this is our first one. Verses 12, 13, and 14 is Paul telling the story of God extending mercy to him personally. A personal degree of mercy. And this is how Paul loves to do this in his letters. He will set himself up as an example and then expand that to include everyone. And he'll use this greater to lesser analogy or the I'm so bad that, he, that God's grace can cover anyone else. It's this Jewish way of arguing like look at me. Therefore, once you've established the truth of God's grace in me, it's, it's really easy to recognize how it works for everyone else. Paul will call himself the worst opponent of of Christ originally. And yet, again, he can't stop talking about the mercy extended to him. Verse 15. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That phrase right there will show up five times in the pastoral epistles. first, First and second Timothy and Titus. This is where Paul said he wants us to to slow down and say there's something extra important about what I'm about to say. This is the true gospel in its very essence. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's the gospel in a nutshell. Now, this While we look at that as, wow, that's a really short, pithy sentence, and really you got to the point and you ignored a lot of things, that is a loaded sentence. If I had my way, and those of you who are with me a lot know this, if I had my way and I could redo biblical translations, I would replace Christ with the word Messiah. Messiah. I think it's really important that we see that, that Paul is claiming something really special here about Jesus, that he is the Messiah. Christ is a title that I think we just glance, like, gloss over pretty quickly, but it is the Messiah, Jesus. So we have in Jesus the one who fulfills everything, all the expectations that Israel rightfully had and doesn't fulfill all their inappropriate expectations. But we have the Savior that Israel has longed for, all the way back to Genesis 3 the fall. We have the one who fulfills every pregnant expectation of the Old Testament. When it says Christ Jesus, read Messiah Jesus, Jesus the Messiah. Paul is explaining the gospel in very profound but Phrases. The Messiah came into the world to save sinners. There's and the idea of the incarnation, the pre-incarnate one who condescends to poor little humanity, takes on human flesh, and fulfills the mission of the Messiah. To do what? To save those who have lived absolute evil lives as an affront to the creator of the universe. That's the gospel, according to Paul. No wonder he says this is a saying that's trustworthy. And full, deserving of full acceptance that the Messiah came into the world to save sinners. So he says, contrary to the gospel I've already described in the first half of chapter one, where these people want to bring in this Jewish mythology that results in works, that results in an adherence to the law that adds something to Jesus, adds an an extra level of morality to Jesus, and I love the idea that we can make Jesus more clean with, by making Jewish laws law for everyone. Paul says, no, this is, the, this is the true, the trustworthy gospel. The Messiah came into the world to save sinners. And then he says, of whom I am the foremost. Now, is Paul saying, I'm the worst sinner to ever exist? Or is he holding himself up as an example? is saying, he's not saying that I am the first sinner to be saved, he's not saying that I'm the worst sinner ever. I think what he is saying is that, look, he he doesn't even say of whom I was the foremost, he says I am, which is an interesting distinction. I am the foremost. Now if we step back a little bit and look at the text as a whole, this text is Paul's obsession with the mercy of God, with, with God's unconditional, superabundant, unmerited grace. I think Paul is saying that he is always incredibly aware of how broken and sinful he is and he is incredibly gracious to God for what he's done, of whom I am the foremost. He says, I'm still, I can't believe that God would ex- extend such mercy to me. Reminds me of Romans 5.20, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. This is Paul's constant mindset. It says in verse 16, and this is another connection I would circle, but even as the foremost of sinners... I received mercy for this reason. That's the second time he's used that phrase, as he did back in verse 13. That in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience. His perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Now, that brings me back to to why he uses the word foremost twice. I think Paul is setting himself up as an example, as a prototype, so to speak, of how God deals with vile sinners, because then he goes on and says, Jesus might, he, he wants to, he, the, the mercy is given to him, he's, it's received so that as the prototype, as the prototypical sinner, as the, as the sinner exemplar. Jesus might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Perfect patience brings me to Jesus taking on many of the qualities of God himself. Patience is an incredibly powerful aspect of God's character. God is described as slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. Romans 2 says that his kindness, and his forbearance, and his patience are intended to lead sinners to repentance. I have to believe that's why Paul put it like that right here. Because I am the prototypical, the, 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 the sinful example, and watch how God deals with me, he's so patient with me, and it's not meant to excuse, it's meant to prod me towards repentance, so that he might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. The primary theme of this paragraph, so if the the first three verses of 12, 13, and 14 describe God's mercy to Paul, verses 15 and 16 describe God's mercy available to everyone, to all sinners, it says and to any who would believe in him for eternal life. So Paul goes from specific to him, general to mercy for all, and then he ends with this beautiful doxology. He says, to the king of the ages, this is verse 17, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever, amen. Verse 12, he starts out in thankfulness, in gratitude for these very personal, very intimate, very imminent characteristics of God, these, these things that Paul is enjoying, that, that he has given Paul strength, he's extended mercy, he has appointed Paul to service. There's this grace that Paul himself is experiencing, and he's thankful for that. But it's amazing how by the time he talks about this incredible mercy available to everyone, by the time he gets to verse 17, he can't keep it at the personal level anymore. It's no longer this real intimate, it's this cosmic incredible transcendent being that he is worshiping look at these king of the ages he's eternal immortal he is incorruptible these are these are characteristics with god that we do not share like i know how to extend mercy though imperfectly so i know how to be gracious though imperfectly so i know how to be kind most of the time. I have no concept of these qualities that Paul is now describing, that he is blown away by the fact that God has always existed. That God does not experience any degree of decay. Nothing affects him. He's invisible. He transcends our physical status and he is the only God. If you want to give yourself a scripture reference when it says the only God, underline that right, Deuteronomy 6, 4, that's the Shema. Paul can affirm that the same God, and here's the beautiful part about this doxology. Who is it referencing, Jesus or God? It just says the king. Who has Paul been talking about in this passage, Jesus or God? I'm not too inclined to run down and force an answer. And I wonder if Paul intentionally blurs the lines as to who the king is. To this king be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. And this is where Paul ends his argument about Okay, Timothy, I want you, verse three, I want you to go back and stop those men from teaching. From teaching what? Okay, let me explain to you their poor view of the law and how they have ruined the gospel. We have to stop them. Okay, well, what's the right answer? Okay, let me tell you what grace. Let me tell you how God extended mercy to me. Okay, now let me tell you how that means he extends mercy to everyone. Got it? Now let's pause and worship for a minute. Okay, to the king. And then he returns to his instructions to Timothy in verse 18. He says, this charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child. Notice that he used the word entrust again. Much like Paul was entrusted with this perfect gospel in verse 11, much how God has reckoned Paul trustworthy, or our text in the ESV says faithful in verse 12. And he says, you, Timothy, Timothy, This charge I entrust to you, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you. We don't know what those prophecies are. You can go to 1 Timothy 4, verse 14, and it talks about the the elders anointing and prophesying over Timothy at his ordination. There are a number of other speculations as to what the prophecies are. Largely irrelevant to what I think Paul is trying to get across. I think Paul is saying, there is a divine authority at work here. Because I was strengthened by God, and therefore I was entrusted with this gospel. Don't forget the divine prophecies uttered over you, therefore your calling is divine as well. Therefore this charge I entrust to you in light of these prophecies made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. Wage the good warfare. Verse 19. Holding faith and a good conscience. Now here's where I want to pause and spend a few uh, minutes. If you'll recall, back to verse 5, he already strung together faith and good conscience. Um... He says that there's something about waging good warfare, whatever that means, that looks like holding faith in a good conscience. Um, this is, not only do we not have a, whatever, I don't have markers. I didn't intend to use this board. Okay, you just have to listen more. Um, If you'll recall, the last couple of weeks, and even going back to previous semesters, we've talked about this connection between orthodoxy, right belief, right doctrine, and orthopraxy, right practice, and their connection. I've typically contended that right belief produces right action, and I'm not backing down off of that. But I also don't know that it's quite so linear, I don't know that it's quite so linear. I actually think that um, good belief can produce good action. Good belief, if ignored, can produce bad action. Bad action can actually ruin your belief. Paul doesn't really talk about what comes first. He just says you've got to have both. You've got to hold the faith. You've got to have a good conscience. You've got to have an ethic that corresponds to this faith. A few weeks ago, I had an opportunity to go down to a, uh, a camp in southern Oklahoma and speak to um, a bunch of college students at a little weekend conference. My task was to speak to all the guys. So they, they split them up. I had all the guys in the cafeteria, and, uh, and, and I, was, I was asked to come and speak on uh, many of the sins that are typical, uh, that typically experienced by college men and uh, looking out across this room, I was discussing, you know, sins of pride and other such things, and, and an idolatry of success, and then I was talking about um, the inevitable thing. I think the reason they actually asked me to come is to talk particularly about sexual ethics. And I just look at this room of guys, and I, and I say, you know, statistics say half of you have a, have a pornography problem in this room right now. And I told them that my experience uh, with guys being really honest with me is that that is a really low number. It's probably far higher than that with men 18 to 22 or 23. Um, I told him, I said, I, I really wish that the problem was like, that I needed to explain it better. I really wish that when it came to pornography or premarital sex or, or even the new sexual revolution, what, it, what are like sexual ethics in terms of homosexuality and gender identity, I really wish it was just a matter of explaining it to you better because I, I like that. I can do that. If it's just a matter of wording it right, I can, I can handle that to some degree. But I told him, I don't think that's the problem. I don't think it's explain it better, therefore you will believe it. I think it's that you just disagree with God, and therefore you are, what I said what you guys don't know is that in so doing you are slowly searing your conscience. I said the, the sins that you'll hide now, you'll eventually tolerate, and the sins that you eventually tolerate you will one day condone. I told them, I said, Your your ability to ignore the truth as you know it, to, to, to squash your conscience and to live with an ethic that runs contrary to the faith, will eventually produce a non faith. The sins you hide today, you will soon tolerate, and the sins you soon tolerate, you will eventually condone. I said, Watch as your behavior undoes your faith. And I think Paul is describing a lot of the same situation here in terms of it's not enough to just believe the right things. It has to produce right living. Your orthodoxy influences your orthopraxy. Now, can I just trust my conscience, therefore? I don't know if I'm willing to risk that. (laughs) My conscience, unbridled, left to my own devices. One commentator put it this way and I could have reworded it but I thought it was so good I'm just going to read it. He says this. We must also remember that conscience alone is not enough because our conscience can deceive us. Jiminy Cricket's advice to Pinocchio, let your conscience be your guide, is generally good advice. But if your conscience is seared by sin, it is of little help. Jonathan Edwards likened conscience to a sundial and God's word to the sun. Only the light of the sun will give the correct reading. Moonlight cannot work. Candlelight is folly. Both will mislead you. The sunlight of scripture will always tell the truth. And when you live by the truth with a clear conscience, we are in great shape. So what I love is that he says it's not just have a good conscience, trust your conscience. It's a biblically informed conscience. It's an ethic that is informed by Scripture. It's, it's the faith and a good conscience. I had a great conversation this morning with a young lady who was asking me. She she's purchased a devotional for her family to, to go through together, and it happens to be structured around the Westminster Shorter Catechism. And she knows enough about our movement to know that we're a little hesitant to jump on board with creeds. And so she asked me, is this, like, this going to be heresy if we go through the Westminster Shorter Catechism? And I told her, no, not if you use the catechism as it's intended. I said, we don't like the idea that we would use your ability, your the, your." requirement of believing everything in that catechism before we'll baptize you into church membership. We would never do that. That's what our church movement fought against 150 years ago. But a catechism is intended to take biblical truth and and teach it in easy to understand and retain ways. So I told her, I think it's incredibly beneficial for you to go through this with your family. You know why? Because they're going to start to internalize the scriptures that's what it's for. And I got to share with her, like this is, this is much better than behavior modification with your children. To get them hooked on the doctrines and dogma found in scripture through studying the catechism together. I said, I have other catechisms I like more, but whatever. I like that you're going to go after this. What you're going to do is you're going to bolster up the faith such that it informs their conscience and they work together. A biblically informed conscience is one that, as he says in verse 18, wages the good warfare. He asks Timothy to hold himself to a faith and a good conscience because leaders can't themselves ask others to adhere to an ethic they won't. So he says, you gotta stand up, and then he gives this instruction. By rejecting this, some have made a shipwreck of their faith. by ignoring their conscience, by having an ethic that doesn't correspond to truth, some have made a shipwreck of their faith. Among whom are Himenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Okay, Paul really knows how to end on a downer. But here's what he's saying. He's saying some men, because they are willfully rejecting the truth. Contrary to, look at how this folds in on itself. Contrary to Paul acting in ignorance earlier in our passage, he says, some take the faith and have shipwrecked it because they don't live in line with it. I've had to hand these men over to Satan so they may learn not to blaspheme. Now, first of all, you might recognize some of these these names. Hymenaeus, you'll see in 2 Timothy 2. Him, uh, he, he's with another guy named Philetus or Philetus, who... They were teaching everyone that the resurrection had already happened. A bit of a no-no in Paul's book. So he says not, like these leaders are hurting the church. Alexander we don't know as much about. There are several Alexanders mentioned in the New Testament. We can't pinpoint which one he's actually describing. But nevertheless, you have men who are ignoring the truth with their actions, and therefore their orthopraxy, their bad action, their inappropriate living has shipwrecked their orthodoxy. So he's had to hand them over to say, this is just Paul's way of saying, remove them from the church fellowship. This is excommunication, removing someone out of the church. Now this isn't remove them, ha, 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 punish you, you shouldn't have wronged us. This is so that you would learn not to blaspheme. This is remedial. This is, church discipline is not punitive, it's corrective. Paul doesn't want them gone, he wants them to learn. After all, Paul says, back up in verse 13, that formerly I was a blasphemer. And by God's great mercy and kindness, I learned not to blaspheme. I'm going to deal with these men for their own sake, but for the protection of the church first and foremost, so that they would learn not to blaspheme. Church discipline is always working its best when there is at some point, restoration to the fellowship. And that's Paul's aim. Same thing in 1 Corinthians five. He makes recommendations. This is corrective action, removing someone from the fellowship because Paul, like you see all throughout here, he received mercy after all, verse 16, as an example for those. He's not, it's not for him, He's, his obsession is with, as it says back up in verse 12, serving others and therefore he will protect the church even if a difficult decision has to be made to remove two destructive men from the fellowship and what I love is that Paul leads by example He says Timothy you've got to go do some very hard work in Ephesus follow my example I've already dealt with two I need you to go back and stop the others And he says, remember, like, I was entrusted with this gospel. I have the divine authority to, to act. Don't forget the prophecies that were made about you. Paul jumps from in these three sections, from mercy to him in particular, to mercy to everyone. And then he says, in light of the great mercy that God has given us, our doctrine and our conduct must be in step with one another. And when they're not, we deal with it. Paul, after all, is himself a blasphemer, now counted as one in Christ. That's his hope for these men. Next week, you're going to actually see how this, this results, how the great mercy, the true gospel that produces the worship we see in verse 17, how it affects prayer. Let me pray, and we will be done. Father, we too are exceptionally grateful for the mercy you've extended to us and for the testimony we have through these incredible documents that you saw fit to preserve for thousands of years that we would benefit from such testimony. And like Timothy received incredible instructions from your apostle, we too can see the need to Take what's been entrusted to us and to entrust it to others. We're grateful for Paul's example of mercy, service, and discipleship, and I pray that we would find ways to not only praise your name for what you have done in our lives, but that we would have others to whom we can entrust the message of such a great mercy Thank you for your scriptures and it is in Jesus beautiful name we pray. Amen. Sorry the